Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. Welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. If it's your first time tuning in, Employee of the Month is all about work. Well, it's about people who started a project and actually completed that project and maybe did that again either a zillion times or a zillion point seven three times. I don't know the exact math, but somewhere along the way, I got to see their work and experience it and enjoy it. And that is how they um, received this dubious award. And they usually deserve better. And I can think of no better example than that than my guest today, Wally Sean. Wally is a phenomenal playwright, essayist, writer, and actor. Some people just recognize him from his movie and TV roles, like The Princess Bride, Taxi, Clueless, Murphy Brown, Pixar's Toy Story. But for those of you, I recommend you also check out his plays and essays. Luckily, the essays are in a book called Essays, actually, is what it's under. But do check out his plays as well. And he's working on a new film with his longtime collaborator, Andre Gregory. Enjoy our conversation. It took place at Joe's Pub, but it was particularly meaningful to do so at the Public Theater. Sean's very first play in New York. Our Late Night debuted at the public in 1975, and he's been an instrumental part of the public theater with his work, and he actually shared some of its history during our interview. You're also going to hear from Taylor Mack and Rosie Perez and myself, who were lucky to be a part of a very improvised cold read of um, one of Wally's great plays, Grasses of a Thousand Colors. So without further ado, here is Mr. Sean and myself on Employee of the Month. You all probably know him from Crossing Jordan or Gossip Girl. No. You all probably know him from his phenomenal plays, many of which he has um, performed here and written and have had performed here, including Designated Mourner and Grasses of a Thousand Colors, as well as, of course, Princess Bride and My Dinner with Andre. I am so thrilled to welcome the one and only Wally Shawn. This is my night. I'm gonna do it just right. I'm gonna let the magic shine. This is my night. I'm gonna do it just right. I'm gonna let the magic shine. It's hard to see everyone, right? Difficult. But they can see every hair follicle on us. <laughs> That's the, the terrifying part. <laughs> um, Wally, thank you so much for, for coming here. I um, first discovered you when I was very young um, reading your essays. And I wanted to ask you, you started playwriting at age 10. How did you know how to write? I mean, I know you knew how to write in cursive and print, but I meant how, how to write a play at age 10. I, I guess I must have said that somewhere. Somebody, I mean, a teacher um, told me to write a play, um, and uh, told me the subject, and uh, so it wasn't that difficult. Not the sharpest tool in the shed over here. You, you went to Harvard. I did not. That is why I am asking that question. <laughs> um, you have written uh, an, many, many plays. I wanted to also ask, when do you know a play is finished? That's a wonderful question. Um, uh, should I explain to people... Well, I won't. Yes, I, you, can, you can explain yes, whatever you do. want. Should, should I have prefaced that better? Yes, please. Uh, no, no, I won't. I, um, I suppose <laughs> that um, it, it has to uh, have some... 
I read the whole thing after I've, you know, I, most of these plays I've worked on for many years at a, and uh, at a certain point I think, well, I'm going to read it uh, from the beginning to the end and uh, if it has too if it's if the effect well first of all if i'm so bored that i don't finish reading it that it's it isn't ready to be seen clearly by other people and uh, if it if it affects me and i can read the whole thing through and i have some kind of emotional reaction i suppose i think it's finished but uh, there's i mean the other definition is that you can't make it any better I don't know what that experience is, but you I'm could, listening. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you could decide. I mean, that's the way I think most people probably finish working on things. They've done as much as they can, and uh, anything they add is only making it worse. I I, I was asking because I um, when designated mourner played here, people were saying it was so prescient um, and so timely. And of course, you had, you had written it long before. <laughs> that's why uh, you had written it, oh, I think, over a decade before um, it was seen here. So that's why I was, I was uh, bringing that up, because I heard that, I think that you um, maybe edited it a little bit, or no? Uh, or was that grasses? No, well, I always, um, I keep changing all of my plays. Okay. Uh, even the earliest ones. And um, this one, uh, Grasses of a Thousand Colors, that we did in that little room over behind yeah. us, that um, I think is unusual in that I've brought out a second edition of it that's quite different. That is the loudest cell phone I've ever heard. <laughs> it sounds very serious, though. Um, so, so there's a, this version, and then there's another one which, which sort of, quite frankly, says uh, revised edition. I'll have to go get the revised edition. They should have told me that at the drama bookshop. I will go back immediately. If Taylor Mack was still working there, I would have gotten the correct help. Um, with Grasses of a Thousand Colors, there's... Um, the, there's an interplay between um, women and a cat. And at one point, the cat's sexuality is almost as if it's a human. And I was curious if you did a lot of research. <laughs> uh, no, I, I'm, uh, I'm allergic to cats. <laughs> so I, I, in a way, know less about cats. <laughs> than anybody in this room, but I, and maybe someone who really lived with cats and knew them well and would never have written that play. Uh, I know some of the people who were upset by it are people who are very close <laughs> to cats. I'm relieved to hear this because at one point I thought maybe he has a dog and he's just trying to protect the dog's identity by making it into a, a cat. 
fine. That's good to know. Um, now, you have worked with Andre Gregory for over 41 years, correct? That's right. And you guys are working on a new project, and I wanted to hear, or a film that's going to be released. Yes, we, uh, Andre Gregory, uh, a great theater director, he directed the two plays that we did in that little room. The Designated Mourner and Grasses of a Thousand Colors. And uh, we've also been working for about 15 years on a play of Ibsen, Norwegian playwright, that uh, I translated. And I, let's be frank, I played the biggest part in that play. <laughs> and did we, you, did, was there a casting couch? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's uh, I the, apologize. the off off Broadway world doesn't really work that way. It's all <laughs> but anyway, we've made a movie of it. Jonathan Demi has uh, has made a film of uh, this uh, disturbing play, a master builder about the architect. It's about an architect. And, um, uh, well, it's, you know, well, it's about many interesting, you know, death and uh, everything else, really. It's, uh, it's, it's on the heavy side, admittedly. Um, it was written in the later part of Ibsen's life. And... Um, We've rehearsed it for an unbelievably long time, so... Can, can you let people know, because I don't think people understand just how long you rehearse. Well, the way we usually work is we... I mean, we started that in 1997. <laughs> and, now they understand. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we don't work every day. We, we uh, work for a few weeks, and then... Uh, people go off and earn a living and live, and then we get back together. It, uh, it sounds like a jazz band that come, gets together and <laughs> practices. Yes, I mean, we're not paid to do this. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's... it's uh, but if you work for such a long period of time, or even less than that, but if you work over a period of months or years rather than weeks, um, the script makes interesting connections with your own self, and uh, you don't need to make an effort. It just does that because uh, the unconscious is uh, very real. And... Uh, so it, it uh, strangely, you can become very spontaneous when you're playing a part that you've played for such a long time. You don't feel that you are even reciting lines. The other person says something, and you sort of feel like saying what, in fact, is the next thing in the script. But, but you say it in a way that you don't expect, and you you can. I mean, ordinarily, actors 
actually learn their blocking at the same time as they learn their lines. So they know that they're going to lean forward and say, I'm concerned about that. <laughs> and every time that they sort of go like this, they say, I'm concerned about that. Or every time that they say the line, they begin to, I'm concerned, they begin to move in that way. Whereas, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if, we, if you do it over years, you know the part. The words can mean many more things than you ever dreamed. Recently, you took one of your plays, I thought was really um, thoughtful, um, to Brazil. And I wanted um, you to share why you chose to um, go perform for, for one person. <laughs> uh, well, the, or two. Yeah, well, one of the, uh, one of the plays that we did uh, was called The Designated Mourner. Uh, and it was uh, a three-character play, myself, Deborah Eisenberg. The and writer. The writer. Not to name drop, but she's also a MacArthur Genius Grant winner. And she's... Uh, I think you just name dropped. <laughs> she's in the audience. She's also um, Wally's partner. So uh, Deborah, myself, and uh, Larry Pine, who is the laughing figure in the middle, and that's Andre Gregory, our director, on the, on the side, standing up. And uh, that play has a lot to do with uh, people taking politically courageous or and or cowardly stands in life and uh, risking their necks or not risking their necks. Uh, my character is a kind of amusing guy, but someone who doesn't want to risk his neck. So anyway, we, uh, I invited to the play, uh, I like to do my plays for people I admire. It's very enjoyable for me. Uh, so I invited uh, the writer Glenn Greenwald to come to the play. I wrote to him in I don't know, it was about a year ago, in April. He's a political journalist, I just want to say. He, write, he wrote for The Guardian. And he writes incredible political commentary. So Very conservative, uh, very right-wing <laughs> political yeah. commentary. He's a, he's a uh, let's say he's a, an incredible critic of the United States, and he's a, a wonderful, wonderful writer. It was actually Deborah Eisenberg who introduced me to his, his political columns in Salon.com before he moved to The Guardian. At the same time I was reading him, Edward Snowden was reading him, and Edward Snowden decided, well, if I'm going to give away all of these documents, I'm going to give them to a man I admire, Glenn Greenwald. Now, meanwhile, this is a long story. Glenn... Uh, went to Brazil eight years ago, and on the beach, he met a man whom he fell in love with. And he made an application to the American immigration authorities. I would like to bring my friend, David, to live with me in America. And they said, you can't. 
So he moved to Brazil, and he lived in Rio. He'd been a constitutional lawyer. He stopped practicing law, and he became a full-time writer. Are you following all this? So anyway, I invited him to come to the play, and a couple of months later, and he responded, he said, I'd love to come. Yes, terrific. A couple of months later, he was on the front page because he was in Hong Kong getting all these papers from Edward Snowden. So he felt at that time it was not sensible to come to the United States, <laughs> uh, even to see uh, that play. So uh, I was really upset. And so I asked uh, Deborah and Larry Pine and Andre, our director, and our sound designer, Bruce Odland, what would you think if we took the play to, to Brazil? We did it for Glenn, because it's outrageous that the United States government is putting an obstacle because they're going to try to arrest him or do whatever they might want to do. They're putting an obstacle in, in between him and the play. <laughs> uh, because uh, a play happens to be something that cannot be uh, put in in the mail. Uh, yeah. I mean, you can put you can put the script in the mail. Not the same experience. But we worked on the play for years. That that those years of rehearsal cannot go into the envelope. When you got there, did he enjoy it? He did. <laughs> he did. Uh, no, it was a hit in Rio. Uh, it, uh, and, they, and he and uh, David invited uh, about 35 uh, people who knew English and who were into it. And so it was a, uh, yeah, it was a beautiful experience. You started acting at 36, and I believe that was a way to say, I'm going to do plays, and I'm going to do whatever I want with my art, and I'm going to make a living acting. Is that correct? Well, I didn't decide to make a living uh, <laughs> acting. I mean, I, I, um, I had been writing plays for 10 years or so, and, um, well, someone offered me a job as an actor, Wilfred Leach, who was doing a play in that same room that I had translated. Uh, he uh, offered me a part. And um, I had not ever taken a very serious uh, job because um, my own father had actually given me some wise advice. Can I preface that your father was the... Um Editor of the New Yorker. Yes, he he and he he had worked. Um, he had originally wanted to be a writer, but not that far off. Well, it yes, it's quite different, really. He you know he went to the office every day and he had a job and he helped other people to write, but he was not himself writing. Mm. And he said to me, 
if you if you want to write, it isn't a very good idea to get for you. It isn't a very good idea to get a really good job to support yourself because you will be ambitious, you will want to do well, you'll get promoted, you'll rise up to a higher level in that job, and uh, maybe the writing will disappear. So if you need to support yourself, you should do things that aren't going to have that effect. So. Um, basically, I, I did follow that advice. I mean, so I got, I was offered a job, and uh, I had been thinking of driving a taxi. Uh, but not seriously. Well, I'd done other things that were on a lower plane, such as, you know, working as a shipping clerk or a messenger, I just can't imagine you driving a cab. You would go so slow. <laughs> well, <laughs> the thing is, no, no, I, I, I mean, I, I, I know. What I am, and it's uh, it's tragic, but uh, I accepted. Anyway, I my bigger bigger problem, and Deborah was very concerned about it, was that I really can't drive, <laughs> and. Uh, so I, I mean, I did, I do, I do have a license, but I, like many people who grew up in New York City, I learned very, very late. My mother really didn't believe, she thought driving should be done only professionally. Uh, that she didn't believe an amateur could really do it and I I'm not a very good driver so Wilford offered me uh, the job and I incidentally this was his this room at that time was his office it's all so bizarre everything this it, very room. Yeah, I mean, everything in this building, I've hung out in the building since uh, around 72. So I know all, Joe Papp was obsessed with, with rearranging the building. And actually everyone who has taken over the building has, has shared that, that sort of mania for constantly rearranging the building. So this was uh, Wilfred's office. And he wow. uh, offered me that job and offered to pay me. And then that, I, from that I got into films and that seemed to be the perfect job. And it is because you, you it are very well paid for very short periods of time and you don't rise up 
in the hierarchy. I mean, they don't make you the producer next time. Uh, they don't even make you the leading man. I mean, you, 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 you. So yes, that was a. It turned out luckily. How often in a week do you get? Um, it's inconceivable. Well, a lot of people uh, saw the film *The Princess Bride*, and um, I would say, um, yeah, probably every week or a couple of times or once or twice. Uh, probably in a week, several people mention it, uh, and. Uh, uh, probably a couple of people a week either say that to me or they ask me to say it, which I, I, I don't do, actually. I did, I did want to ask about working with the other Andre, Andre the Giant. Yes. Well, he was a very, uh, he was an interesting and, uh, he was very nice to me. He could be uh, irritable because it was... Um, he was a giant. <laughs> very, very hard. I mean, it's a... Uh, it's not only a terrible deformity when you know you're going to die before you're 45 or whatever, but it's also... Uh, everybody feels they have the right to make remarks and whatever. He was incredibly nice to me. I was quite afraid of many of the things that I had to do in that film. And he was, uh, I was tied to him for physically wow. for a great deal of the film. And uh, he was very, very uh, nice to me. He had decided as a young man that he wanted to see the world. And he decided uh, that wrestling would enable him to do that. And he, he did that. Wow. I wanted to ask, we, we only have a, a couple minutes, but I was wondering if we could just do a quick reading from your play. Would that be okay to do? Well, we, we, you know, this is almost, we're doing, I, I'm into it, but friends... This is an unrehearsed uh, yes. reading. Now, ordinarily, we rehearse our plays over years. <laughs> this, this is going to be unrehearsed, and, and it, it's impossible. To, I'm not, there's no way to set the context. Uh, We're going to bring Taylor Mack and Rosie Perez back on. And I think this is a great taste of theater. Oh. And um, before we do the play, I, I got you, I'm giving you, this is, this is a, um, one of my favorite books. It's called The Guide to Getting It On, because it's one of the funniest books and most informative on sex, and I thought you would enjoy it. There are no cats in it, but I did want to make sure that you have it. It's, that is a, a favorite of mine since college. This is an enormous <laughs> book. Um, wow. And I just want to welcome everyone back. Taylor Mack, Rosie Perez. I thought it would be a nice way to end a beautiful evening at the theater with a segment okay. from Molly. So, uh, do you have a... As the director, 
Let's do, I think we'll do it as seriously as we can. Okay. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's not a, a somewhat serious play in a way. <laughs> Although, you know, it depends on how you want to look at it. It's, um, uh, I'm going to read the stage directions. Taylor is reading the man's part, which he doesn't, he, he gets a name only after about three hours, so we're not going to worry about that. Uh, Rosie is going to read Robin, who is uh, Taylor's girlfriend. The, the woman who is, turns out to be a cat is his wife. She's not even going to figure in this. And um, so, I don't know. Well, you'll get to read the part of, of the... the Paradoxically, you will be Rose, the uh, younger of the... Uh... Oh, are we sharing? Oh, look, more microphones. All right, I'm going to read the stage directions. So you're not going to... There's no point in describing the story. You know. Uh, you know. Uh, you know. We're, we're just going to start at a certain point. Which is uh, just right, yeah, right there. there. Okay, yeah. <laughs> when I arrived at home, I found the cat walking nervously on top of the sofa, obviously at a loss or distracted somehow. Then I looked upstairs and I saw Robin, also with the same distracted face. It seemed, coming out of the bedroom completely nude, her cunt dripping. Through the crack of the open bedroom door, I could see her husband, Mike, disconsolately covering his enormous member with a small bit of underwear. The hint of sexuality was unmistakable. Perhaps I haven't come at an appropriate time. I began awkwardly, my own dick slightly lifted by the unexpected scene. Robin and her husband dismissed my re remark with a sort of exhausted irritability, pulling on their clothes with abrupt movements. The next night, I made dinner. He is cooking, chopping vegetables. So the guy, I'm sorry, what did you say? My attention somehow wandered for a moment. You were saying that Paul Hay... No, no, I said Paul Keel, who was one of Jerry's... Favorite painter, so if you wanted to get a present for Ed, I saw a nice book of the watercolors by Paul Keel, and if you... Why would I be getting a present for Fred? For Ed. Ed. Oh, Ed. Yes, I can remember a period when Jerry liked uh, Clay, uh, but that was a long time ago. I haven't heard Jerry say anything about Clay Cleel for at least <laughs> ten years. As he prepares food, Robin prepares for her own suicide. She puts on music. A ritual is readied. A basin of water, soap, candles. As he moves on to the next stage of, of his cooking, she appropriates the knife and places it among the items she's assembling. After preparing a circle of objects on the floor, she stands in the center of it. What are you doing? Nothing, obviously. She starts to undress. Are you going somewhere? No. She picks up the knife. Well, then why are you... Fuck! 
Will you stop that? She continues her action. Is this that suicide thing again? Not suicide. What's going on? What's happening? What's happening? <laughs> What's happening? What's happening? <laughs> That's becoming sort of like a slogan with you, isn't it? You seem to say it so frequently. <laughs> like one of those phrases that fanatics use when they meet each other like hi Hitler what's happening what's happening <laughs> here's what's happening she tries to <laughs> she tries to stab him with the knife they struggle fight he takes the knife from her it seems he will kill her, but instead he throws the knife on the ground, then turns off the music. Look, I'll tell you my problem. I'm terribly tired. I'm desperate to sleep, but I can't sleep. I... You can't, why not? I can't sleep, obviously, because Blanche wanders around all night long. She... That's the cat. <laughs> really? She does? She knocks things over. She goes through every room. Well, maybe we'd better get rid of her then. What? I, I don't mean kill her, for Christ's sakes. I just mean, maybe we should find another home for her. I don't know, write an ad or something. Really? Do you think so? He is gone. Rose is there instead. She and Robin are seated. I see. Look, I... Do you... Do you mind me asking, why do you want a cat, exactly? Do you like animals? Well, for my apartment, actually. You know, for mice. I just, I just, I just, I hate mice. Oh, sure, yeah, I understand. But can I be frank with you? I love Blanche. I, I want to give her to someone who would also love her. Um, well, that's asking quite a lot. <laughs> I'm not sure I can promise that. Um... That may be a little too much for me. <laughs> uh, okay, look, I'll be honest with you. I don't care about the cat. That was sort of a pretext. I'm actually looking for a girlfriend for this man I know. Oh, you... Yeah, I, I've, I've, I've sort of been living with him myself for a while, actually, but we're having some problems. Oh, I see. Handing her a large photograph. This is his penis. Wow. Nice. Yeah, so you're interested then? Interested? Well, I don't. He enters. Hey. Uh, wait. <laughs> what look? This is him now. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, uh, am I? Uh, no, 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 no. Rose has come to see about Blanche. Oh, I see. Are you going to take her? Well, um. Probably. Uh, so let me just know how you feel about it. Give it some thought. Uh, um, here's, here's my business card. It has a picture of uh, my vagina on it. Oh, great, thanks. Uh, yeah, great. Rose leaves. Well, I hope that girl will take Blanche. There's something agreeable about her somehow. Oh, so you liked her, did you? Yes, I did. Why is that, do you think? Oh, I don't know. She seemed quite nice. And I guess I tend to be, you know, aff affectionate. And But you don't like Blanche, it seems, and you don't like... 
Me, we all know that. What? How could you say that? I've ruined my life for you. Isn't that enough? It's something, sure, but it doesn't mean... It doesn't mean you like me. Uh, Anyway, be honest. She's the one who's interests you now. Something's going to happen between you and her. I'd stake my life on it. Oh, come on. Something. Sexual. God, I love that word. (laughs) You guys, please give a warm hand to Wally Sean, Taylor Mac, and Rosie Perez. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe on iTunes and come to a live taping at Joe's Pub. They are so much fun. They happen monthly. I'm an artist in residence there. It doesn't come with a residence, but it does come with a phenomenal opportunity to share these great interviews live. You can go to employeeofthemonthshow.com to find out ways you can donate, get involved, and um, get tickets to upcoming live tapings. Thank you to Ian Mazoff for editing this together, and thanks to all of you for listening. Let's all go out there and change the world. Or at least just take advantage of today. Today is good. Today I'm going to accomplish something. Hope you will too. But you don't have to. I mean, don't feel obligated on my account.